book of Psalms, or the Psalter as it's often called, is a really unique book. It is God's word to man and man's word back to God. Uh, It's the revelation of God's glory. And it is our response to God's glory. It is at the same time a call for worship and the worship called for. Like a National Gallery of Art, the Book of Psalms is a collection of 150 Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers. And these works were compiled by one author, but composed of many, many different authors. Seventy-three of these poems and songs were written by David, the giant killing shepherd boy who became Israel's greatest king. Twelve of the 150 were penned by Asaph, or Asaph, I don't know how to pronounce that very well, but he was a musician and choir leader in the temple. Eleven are attributed to the sons of Korah. That was a priestly family uh, who served as guardians of the temple. Uh, Two of these works are attributed to Solomon, one as far back as Moses, and then 49 are anonymous. Uh, But William Plummer, one of the commentators that I'm using primarily throughout our study, William Plummer is right. He says, quote, the real author of the Psalms is the Holy Spirit of God. So this was the testimony of Jesus and all of the New Testament writers who regularly quoted the Psalms as God's inspired and preserved word. Within the 150 Psalms, they could be divided into two main genres, two main kinds of Psalms. First of all, Psalms of praise that show us the glory of God so that we praise him for who he is and what he has done. And then psalms of lament. Psalms of lament are those songs and prayers and poems that give expression to the multitude of human emotions in light of suffering and sin within us and around us. In the psalms, we see the full palette of God's glory as well as the full spectrum of human emotions and experiences. It's a fabulous book. However, I admit when I was younger, I really had a little desire for the Psalms. Maybe that was your experience too. They didn't really resonate with me as much as other portions of Scripture, like, say, Proverbs or some of the New Testament epistles. But also, this might have been your experience. For me, as life became more complex, the Psalms became more beneficial. Most modern versions mark out the Psalter with uh, five books. 150 psalms in one collection, five books of psalms within the book of Psalms. Take your copy of God's Word, please. Turn to the book of Psalms. If you don't know where it is, just 
cut the Bible in half, lay it open, you'll probably be looking at Psalms something or another. I want to show you the divisions of these five books. Look at Psalm 1. You'll see book 1. Psalm 1 through 41 is book 1. Look over at Psalm 42. You'll see book 2. Psalm 42 through Psalm 72. Then book 3 begins at Psalm 73. Do you see that? Psalm 73 uh, will have above it book 3. Then if you look at Psalm 90, you'll see book 4. Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. And then Psalm 107 begins book 5. Do you see that division there above it? That's not just a man-made thing. I actually used to think it was. I thought it was entirely man-made, but I've learned throughout my study of the Psalms now that there are indications of these divisions within the Psalter itself. Most significantly, each of the books ends with a doxology and a double amen. Now, I didn't know that before. I learned that. Uh, Take, for example, Turn back to the end of book one, Psalm 41, verse 13, and you'll see this doxology and double amen. Psalm 41, 13 ends book one with these words. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The next thing you see is book two. Psalm 42. Uh, Look, for example, at the end of book two. Look at Psalm 72, verses 18 through 20. You'll see again, the book ends with a doxology and a double amen. Psalm 72, 18 ends book two with these words. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Notice the next verse, verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, which tells us that book one and book two are primarily, maybe exclusively, the Psalms of David. We could continue the same thing uh, with book three, with book four, but book five fittingly ends with five hallelujah psalms. Those hallelujah psalms begin and end with praise the Lord in all five, indicating five books, five psalms, five hallelujahs. Really interesting. So if the Psalter is like the National Gallery of Art, then Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are positioned in the foyer, inviting all who enter to experience the blessing of this book. Go back to Psalm 1. You'll notice that as as Psalm 1 sits in the foyer, it begins with the promise of blessing. Both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 has a promise of blessing. Psalm 1 begins with it. Psalm 2 ends with it. Look at Psalm 1. It begins with a promise of blessing. Blessed is the man who. Now look at the end of Psalm 2. Before we enter this national gallery of Psalms, 
Psalm 2, verse 12, ends with the promise of blessing. Verse 12, blessed are all who. Psalm 1 promised blessing to all who delight in God's wisdom. Psalm 2 promises blessing to all who take refuge in God's King. And therein we see the substance of the Psalms. God's wisdom and God's King. God's Word and God's King, the Messiah. Well, those who have visited this national gallery of art in the Psalter have had no shortage of accolades as they exit. In the 1500s, Martin Luther said about this, the Psalter is a little Bible and the summary of the whole Old Testament. One verse of the Psalms is sufficient for the meditation of the day, and he who at the end of the day finds himself fully possessed of its sense and spirit may consider his time well spent. Move on to the the middle of the 1500s. Later, John Calvin referred to the Psalter as an anatomy of the soul. He explained, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented in the Psalter as a mirror. The 1700s, George Horn wrote, the Psalms inform the understanding, elevate the affections, and entertain the imagination. He who has once tasted of their excellencies will desire to taste them yet again, and he who tastes them most often will relish them best. Exquisite book. The 1800s, Charles Spurgeon agreed. He said, the book of Psalms has been a royal banquet to me. And in feasting upon its contents, I have seemed to eat the food of angels. Does it not say just what we all wished to say? Are not its prayers and its praises exactly such as our hearts delight in? No man needs better company than the song. Last Sunday, as we celebrated our 11th anniversary as a church, David Goff, our friend, encouraged our church to make sure that we constantly focus on the treasure, which is Christ. Remember, we individually and we collectively are jars of clay that contain the treasure, which is Christ. His message to us last week was focus on the treasure. Treasure Christ above all things. Well, we elders recognize this. And at the beginning of August, as we were choosing the next book to study after 1 Corinthians, we agreed that we want to fuel our love for the Lord. And so we chose the book of Psalms to study. And at this time, we're not going to study all 150 sequentially. But we will study book one of the Psalms, Psalms 1 through 41. That study begins this morning. So this morning, as we stand in the foyer, 
of this incredible gallery of worship, we consider Psalm 1. And my prayer is that you will delight in the law of the Lord and be blessed. Let's read Psalm 1. This is God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's God's word. Amen. So like any piece of art, any poem, uh, let's just start by looking at the, the picture that it presents. In the words of William Plummer, the sum of the psalm is the righteous and he alone is blessed. The righteous and he alone is blessed. This psalm invites us to love righteousness by presenting the end of righteousness and by pointing to the dreadful end of the wicked. The righteous and he alone is blessed. So this psalmist taps into the one thing that we all want. The one thing that every single human being on planet earth wants, and that is to be blessed. We all want to flourish in life, don't we? Notice verse 1, blessed is the man who. Did you know Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount, his first public sermon with these same kinds of words? Matthew chapter 5, blessed are thee. This blessing is, is the word for happy. It's it's soul satisfaction, it's being fulfilled at the deepest possible levels, and it's being blessed by God. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you want for your kids? Grandma, grandpa, isn't that what you desperately want for your grandkids? To be blessed and to flourish. We see there that this tree in verse 3, is flourishing as it is planted by the streams of water, as it yields its fruit, and it does not wither. It's a picture of what we all want, and the psalmist taps into that this morning. And then the psalmist shows us that there's two ways to get the one thing that we all want. There's two ways to get there. Now, there's God's way, and then there's man's way. We all want deep soul satisfaction and we can go God's way or we can go man's way. Here, 
God's way is revealed in, quote, the law of the Lord. Look at verse 1 and 2. The psalmist explains, blessed is the one who, what? Delights in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is the way to blessing and flourishing. Look at verse 5 and 6. He calls it the way of the righteous. The, The word righteous means to be straight and to be just. It's a life that conforms to the Lord's moral and ethical standards. That's the way to be blessed. That's the way to flourish. Now, when the psalmist talks about the law of the Lord, certainly it includes the Ten Commandments, which maybe that's exactly what you thought of when you heard the law of the Lord was the Ten Commandments. It certainly includes that. Maybe you thought, well, there's a lot more than Ten Commandments. The law of the Lord probably includes the 613 commandments that are in the uh, Old Testament. Certainly it does. But it's not limited to that. This is the word Torah. The law is the word Torah, and Torah means teaching or instruction. Blessed is the man who delights in what? The teaching of God, the instruction of the Lord. The Torah is the Lord's inspired word. It's all of God's word. The Torah is his righteous ways. It's his revealed will for us. It is God's perfect wisdom. Psalm 1 sits in the foyer of the Psalter, promising blessing for all who will love and live according to God's word, God's ways, God's wisdom. But just as clearly and even more emphatically, the psalmist warns us that there's another way to live. There is another way that you and many pursue the satisfaction and fulfillment in life that their soul desires. It's man's way instead of God's way. Have you ever been tempted to go your own way instead of God's way? The psalmist does not present man's way as A different but equally good option. Look at the psalm. Seven times in this short poem, man's way and man's wisdom is described as the way of wickedness and sin. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Before the psalmist tells us that it is, that the blessings are found in delighting in God's law, he warns us not to delight in man's way. See, here's the truth. The wicked think they know a better way to live. Sinners go their own way to achieve the flourishing that they desire. Scoffers 
have settled into believing that they know what's best. As Derek Kidner explains, these three phrases in verse 1 show three degrees of departure from God by portraying conformity to this world at three different levels. Accepting its advice, being party to its ways, and then most fatally, adopting its attitudes. The ways of man are contrary to the ways of God. The wisdom of man is foolishness in God's eyes. In fact, Proverbs chapter 12 says it this way. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Haven't we all been there? In Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's two ways to get the one thing we all want. There's God's ways and man's way. God's way will lead to flourishing. Man's way will lead to perishing. And that's the most vivid thing about this psalm, don't you think? It's not just the one thing we all want or the two ways to get there, but what's most vivid about this psalm are the contrasting outcomes. Look at it again. The contrasting outcomes of these two ways to live. The one who delights in God's way, what does it say? Verse 3. He flourishes in this life like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, brothers and sisters, this prosperity is talking about a, a deep soul satisfaction that goes well beyond physical health or financial success. This is the kind of thing that money literally cannot buy. Flourishing. Being blessed. The righteous are maintained by a perpetual source of life as they are planted by the streams of water. The righteous are productive. They bear fruit. They're able to withstand the seasons of drought. The righteous flourish. In verse 5, they don't just flourish in this life, but they stand in the next. You see that in verse 5? The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We understand from verse 5 and 6 that the righteous does stand in judgment. The righteous is gathered with the congregation of God's people. Why? Because the Lord knows. He doesn't just intellectually, mentally know what the righteous has done. 
He is involved in an intimate covenant relationship with the righteous. The Lord knows, gathers them to himself. Heaven, the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth is portrayed as the place where God will dwell again with his people. Psalm 92, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. There's some hope for us. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is our rock. The one who delights in God's way flourishes in this life and stands in the judgment gathered with the people of God but not so with the wicked. The most vivid contrast, even dwelling more on the fate of the wicked, the misery of the wicked, the one who lives according to man's ways. Psalm 1 teaches us that the wicked lives a life that is worthless. Look at verse 4. Their, their life here and now is worthless. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Derek Kidner points out the fact that chaff is the ultimate in what's worthless, weightless, and useless. Think about this metaphor. Chaff, uh, when, the, when you would gather the grain, when you would harvest the grain, I don't know anything about this personally, but I've been around the block to, enough to know and read a few things. You, you, they thresh the grain, toss the grain in the air, and what happens? The wind blows the chaff away and the grain falls down. The chaff is weightless. It's, it's worthless, useless. It's the grain we're after. The wicked are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The point of the metaphor is that man's ways look like they work here and now. But in the end, they come to nothing. Only God's ways, God's wisdom brings true fulfillment. Let that settle in for a minute. The kids at school who, who live on the edge seem to be having the best time. Your coworkers who, who break the rules and abuse the system seem to be getting ahead. Your neighbors who have nothing to do with God, but their much bigger house and much nicer vehicle seems to say that they are a success. 
The psalmist does not deny that the wicked are successful. He denies that they're blessed. As Calvin says, happiness is the inward blessing of a good conscience before God. The one who lives according to man's way lives a life that is worthless. It'll blow away in the end. Look at verse 5. In the end, it will perish. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Verse 5 tells us that when the wicked stand before God, they will have no leg to stand on. To stand is to maintain your cause, to be justified in your actions. But on the last day, William Plummer says the wicked will have no confidence, no comfort, and no support from God. No leg to stand on. Look again at verse 5. The wicked have no place among God's people. The wicked will not stand in judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They will not be gathered with God's people. God is not their God. They are not His people. They will not Enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. But what will happen? They will perish. The word perish simply means to come to an end. To come to nothing. One of the most striking effects, William Plummer says, of the last judgment will be the perfect and eternal separation between the righteous and the wicked. Here, they live together, frequenting the same places of worship, business, recreation, members of the same family, lying in the same bed. Yet, on the last day, they shall part. Why? Why? Romans 1 tells us why. Romans 1 tells us that God has revealed himself to all of us in creation and in his scriptures. But Romans 1 tells us that sinners do not honor God or give thanks to him. Romans 1 tells us that naturally, in our sinful depravity, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. While God has revealed himself to us in creation and through scripture, 
Romans 1 tells us they did not see fit to acknowledge God. We, we act as if God is not God. Instead, Romans 1 tells us that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And for this reason, God gave them up. Terrifying words. Gave them up to their dishonorable passions. Judgment is God giving us over to what we want. The one who lives according to man's way lives a worthless life and perishes in the end. That's the picture of Psalm 1. One thing we all want, two ways to get that one thing, and in a vivid, contrasting outcome. What's the psalmist's point? As we look at this masterpiece... The psalmist is not merely showing us the, the blessing of the righteous and the misery of the sinner as a stated fact or a universal truth. He doesn't want us to just come and, and read this poem or, or look at this piece of art. He's inviting us. I suggest he is exhorting every one of us to do two things. Number one, reject man's way. And number two, delight in God's word. Do you see that in the very opening of the psalm? Blessed is the man who, number one, first and foremost, rejects man's way. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. Why? Because he knows that that way leads to death. But what does he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Why? Because that's the way to flourish. Friends, here's the truth. Seldom do men forsake a wicked life until they are convinced of its misery. Thank you, Mr. Plummer. The ungodly, however moral or amiable or confident of their good state, they are destitute of spiritual life and destitute of God's favor. And not a person in this room will ever value and delight in God's word until we see the misery of our own way. And for some of you, I beg God that he might show you the misery of your own way so that you will come to God's. Reject the ways of man and delight in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates, chews the cud, ruminates over it all day and night. John Calvin says the psalmist does not simply pronounce those happy or blessed who fear God, as in other places. 
but he designates godliness by the study of the law, teaching us that God is only rightly served when his law is obeyed. It's not left, Calvin says, to every man to frame a system of religion according to his own judgment, but the standard of godliness is to be taken from God's word. He wrote that in the 1500s, but boy, do we need that in 2023. We are good at framing our own system of religion according to our own judgment. But the blessing comes as we delight in God's ways, not ours. So it's, it's essential that we understand God's ways are articulated black and white in God's words. And those who would be blessed must delight in them and meditate on them. Why? Because Paul's right in Romans chapter 7. When you hear the law of God, don't you think of something potentially negative? Paul says, no. The law of God is holy righteous and good. It's the way God designed things to be. The Israelites used to remind themselves of this every day. In the core truth of Judaism, the core truth is called the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6 they would recite this often. I, and it's as good for us today as it was for them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. Delight in the law of the Lord. What does that look like? It looks like teaching them to your children, talking of them in your home, walking the, uh, in them during the day, binding them to yourself and writing them over your entire life. God promised Joshua, the book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you may meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The only way to flourish is by delighting in God's law, God's word, God's wisdom, his ways, his will. That's the command, friends. Love the Lord with all your heart. Delight in his law and the promise you'll flourish. You will flourish like a tree planted by streams of water. Bearing fruit 
and never withering in drought. Beautiful. There's a problem. As beautiful as Psalm 1 is, there is a huge problem. We see it. We want it. We agree with it. But there's not a single person in this room who has ever done it or can do it. Try your best. Give it a good shot. You can't fulfill Psalm 1. You don't love God with all your hearts and neither do I. Just like our father Abraham, we're sinners who from the time we're born reject God's ways and delight in our own ways <laughs> instead of the other way around. And because we are sinners, because our life is full of wickedness, then Psalm 1 teaches that we have no leg to stand on. It teaches that we have no place among God's people. And it teaches that we will perish under the just judgment of a holy and righteous God. Friends, that's a problem. But that's not the end of the story. The good news of the gospel is that God didn't leave us, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, to experience the misery of our own way. He did not leave us. God sent Jesus as the second Adam to fulfill Psalm 1 and bring all of God's people into the blessings of Psalm 1. Think about Psalm 1 and how it tells us to delight in the law of the Lord, which leads to blessing. Friends, John 1 tells us that Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was in the beginning with God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. And Jesus is the only one who has ever fulfilled Psalm 1. Because Jesus, with every fiber of his being, every thought, every word, every deed, every attitude, delighted in the law of the Lord. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he did. The writer of Hebrews gives this testimony. Jesus was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. He loved God with all while we love ourselves. Jesus fulfilled Psalm 1 by delighting in the law of the Lord. 
by rejecting the ways of man. One of the first things that that God allowed Jesus to experience after his public baptism was he sent him in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Just like Adam was and Eve were tempted in the garden, Jesus was in the wilderness tempted. And unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus did not sin. He resisted temptation. He fulfilled Psalm 1. And in his first sermon, public sermon, Jesus starts off with, blessed is the one who. Jesus calls us to reject man's ways and delight in him. And the people who grew up with him thought that was just about as arrogant as they had ever heard. Jesus explained that there's two ways to get the blessing that we all want. He says, you need to enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is his first sermon. There are illusions to Psalm 1. He ends that sermon in Matthew chapter 6 by explaining that the only way... (laughs) To get the one thing that you and I want is through him. Jesus says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and great was the fall of it. God sent Jesus as the second Adam to fulfill Psalm 1 and become the tree that gives life to all who are engrafted by faith. Jesus is the blessed one. Jesus is the tree planted by the streams of water who bears fruit. And will never, ever wither. Jesus is the only one who has ever truly prospered. He becomes the tree. And he says so in John chapter 15 that Josh read for us this morning. He he uses the metaphor of a vine. It's the same concept. In John 15... Jesus says, I am the vine, the tree. Abide in me and I in you and you will bring forth fruit. Psalm 1 in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ means that delighting and meditating on God's word is delighting and meditating on God's son who is the word. Blessed is the one who delights in Christ, who fulfilled Psalm 1 and brings us into all of its blessings. Jesus says, come to me. 
Don't come to religion. Don't just come to the scriptures in your moralistic, do-good religion. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Blessed is the one who delights in Christ, who died so that we can stand righteous before God instead of standing condemned in our sin and wickedness. Blessed is the one who delights in Christ, who secures us as part of the congregation of the righteous. Blessed is the one who delights in Christ, who abides in us so that we can flourish. Josh was right. When Jesus talks about abiding in him, delighting in him, he makes it very practical. What does that mean for everybody in the room? If it's not try harder, do better, delighting in Christ is abiding in the word of Christ, the love of Christ, the commandments of Christ. And the promise is that his joy will abide in you so that your joy will be full. Blessing. Flourishing. So every day, the fulfillment of Psalm 1 in Jesus Christ is every single day, Christian brother and sister, every day abide in the words of Christ. Do not read Psalm 1 unless you see it fulfilled in Christ. Otherwise, it leads to exhausting, worthless religion. You can't do it. But Psalm 1, fulfilled by Jesus Christ, is the grace of God to us sinners who deserve judgment but are given grace through God's Son, His wisdom incarnate. We abide in the love of Christ, not our love for Him. Jesus says in, in John 15, His love for us. That's entirely different because at any given day and at any hour of any given day, my love for Jesus wanes. It's up and down, but not his love for me. If you want to know the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of Jesus for you, just look at the cross and the sacrifice he made to secure your forgiveness, to give you his righteousness, and to make you an eternal part of the congregation of the righteous. Just look at the cross. Delighting in Christ is delighting in the cross. 
It shows us his love. Delighting and abiding in Christ and delighting in Christ is keeping his commandments. And it's not a list of 613, though they're all good, though they're all important. The command of Christ is the command of love. And Jesus says his yoke is not burdensome. His love enables us to love others. And the promise is that when we abide in him, his joy abides in us. Imagine that Christ has joy about you. Now, I could believe that. I can, be, I can look around the room because I have enjoy, I have much joy about you. But when I look in the mirror, I don't have much joy about me. But friends, Christ does. Because he has set his love on me as part of his people. I don't deserve that. But his grace is beautiful and his joy is inexhaustible even in the face of my sin. And he says, when my joy fills you, your joy will be complete. Amen and amen. So as we leave Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on his gospel, he meditates day and night. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the riches of your word, and we pray that we would see them not as a list of do's and don'ts, but we would see Psalm 1 as pointing to and being fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your grace to us through him. I pray that you would keep before our eyes the blessing of those who delight in Christ and the misery of those who delight in man's way. I pray, if necessary, you would make some here today miserable so that they would run to Jesus. And I pray for some Christians who live a miserable existence that you would show them, show us the true love and joy of Christ for us so that we too can benefit and display it to others. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.